The important stuff is when people who love you, who are for you, tell you, hey, hey, you need to adjust your behavior. That is the most valuable thing you can possibly have in your life. And to me, that's real mentorship. Yeah. Uh, is a loving, kind rebuke. And with them fully understanding who you are and doing it in a way that is not offensive, but that truly comes through and, and gets, uh, gets through. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering business, ideas, entrepreneurship, investing, and life. We take an unconventional approach that leans into thoughts and ideas that aren't often publicly discussed. We'd love to hear from you at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Ford Capital. All opinions expressed by Chris and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Ford Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thanks for tuning into The Fort. I am really excited to have Brent Bashore, the founder and CEO of Adventures, on the show with me today. Adventures is a family of businesses investing in family-owned businesses. Adventures has acquired several small businesses across the country and runs operations from the great city of Columbia, Missouri. I've been fortunate enough to become friends with Brent over the last six months after following content he writes online for the past few years. We talk about his recent book, The Messy Marketplace, how he thinks about business, how he decides which businesses to buy and which businesses to pass on. He is a master of understanding human incentives and understanding what motivates people. We cover a lot of ground. Stay tuned and have fun. This is an awesome episode. Thanks again for tuning into this journey with me, and I hope you enjoy. Brent, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Chris, for having me on. I appreciate it. How did you start this business? Wow. Uh, yeah, so I've uh, never taken a finance class in my life. I've never worked at another private equity firm. Um, in, in many ways, I feel like the uh, Forrest Gump of private equity in the sense that I uh, fell backwards into it. I was I had started a collection of companies in the marketing and advertising space, and then had the opportunity um, just serendipitously to acquire a company that really opened our eyes to what was possible and the, and the big need out in the marketplace. Um, so that was nine, gosh, almost nine and a half years ago that we acquired uh, MediaCross that became uh, the first acquisition in the portfolio. So you acquired your first company in. Are there any benefits to running your business out of Columbia, Missouri, as opposed to where most people think of where companies that buy other businesses are in like major areas or major cities like New York? Well, the reason why uh, private equity firms would be based in New York is because that's where the capital's based. And I think that's been our biggest challenge is, um, you know, not having connections to Wall Street, not having, you know, connections to large pools of capital, which, you know, it's taken quite a few years to, um, uh, get into those circles. But I would say everything else is far better run out of Columbia, Missouri. I mean, we're in the middle of the country. We can get anywhere quickly. Um, great access to talent, um, beautiful city, low cost of living. Um, it's just it's just uh, the quality of life here, uh, especially for the price, is just astounding. And when you're recruiting, are you recruiting most people that are already in Columbia or is a lot of your folks now moving into town? 
it's a mix these days. Um, so I would say probably 50-50 now. Um, 50% we're recruiting here locally from people we've known for a long time and admired them and looked for the right place to to, to put them. Uh, and then 50% we're doing nationwide searches and uh, getting people to uh, to move here. Yep. Is um like what are what do you tell people when they're on the fence about whether or not to come and you might have already just said it but but what's kind of your your final sales pitch on why Columbia is the land of opportunity <laughs> well uh i mean certainly we have uh, incredible food and music and diversity uh, it's a real young population we're a college town we have 40,000 students in the area so it's a uh, it's a very lively happening place and uh Usually when people visit, um, the, the issue is never that they don't like Columbia. I think maybe the only other issue is in, uh, we're the only private equity game in, in town. And so, uh, of course, uh, there's not a lot of uh, other opportunities in the regions. But, I mean, to the people that we're trying to hire, we want them to be on board for a very, very long time. So hopefully that's not a, not a major issue. Yep. So you've looked at thousands of businesses um, from what I've read and listened to anywhere from a, a pet crematory, I think I said that right, to specialized glass manufacturing. Can you talk at all about some of the common characteristics that you've seen in the great companies, no matter the industry, um, and, and what kind of sets them apart? Yeah, well, so it, it's interesting because I would say that um, small businesses don't stay small on purpose. So if we're looking at the company, they're making typically between $3 million and $8 million a year of earnings a year. Um, so this is, you know, this is what we call owner earnings, what sticks to the owner. So these are owners that are highly successful, but the business is still fairly small uh, in the grand scheme of things. And usually um, uh, there are rare exceptions, but usually these businesses um, have some challenge in a specific area or maybe multiple areas that's restricting them from continuing to grow up market. And so when I think of the, the businesses that are just perfect for us are owners who care deeply about who gets involved in their company, who they're partnering with, and the sort of the long-term home. They don't want the company levered up with a bunch of debt. They don't want the company flipped uh, within a very short period of time to another buyer. Um, they want to have a, a family atmosphere that's maintained, and they want the their people to be taken care of. And their people are their employees, their leadership team, vendors and suppliers and customers and community. So there's a lot of stakeholders. And I would say the, the deals that we've, um, that we've done and the deals that we really uh, appreciate are the ones where all those factors are taken into place and we're, and we're able to work collaboratively with them to design a transaction that meets a lot of their goals, but also takes into account all those stakeholders for the long term. You said you said several things in there I want to key in on, and um, the first was a long-term home. Why uh, I know that you that Adventures provides a long-term home for folks, and why is that so unique these days? And why have you chosen that path as opposed to the three-year to five-year in and out? Well, I would say the reason why it's, it's such a rare structure is because uh, the capital that's needed to do that is, is so rare. Uh, most people have a tough time committing to a 10-year fund, which is typically uh, seven to 10 years as traditional private equity kind of time horizon, uh, which sounds like a long time. But, but what you got to take into account is if it takes three years to buy the company 
and you need to start getting out, you know, around year seven, at most that means you're going to own the company for two years because it takes a while to sell the companies too. So if you're working under a, you know, uh, a two-year, three-year, maybe at very most five-year time horizon, you, you just uh, by necessity have to make different types of decisions and have to limit the uh, scope of the company's opportunity set to what fits within that time horizon. And so I think um, it's not uh, it's not up for debate whether a longer-term time horizon or a shorter-term time horizon is, is superior, right? I think everyone would say, of course, you know, longer is better because you still retain all the optionality you would get with a shorter time horizon, but you just have more optionality to be able to do things you can't do under a shorter one when you have a longer-term time horizon. Um, but usually capital just won't commit for that long. And I think that's where, um, you know, we've been blessed with an incredible group of uh, investors who just get it. They're all uh, former business owners or the families of former business owners. They all understand how long-term decisions really do impact the uh, future of the company and, and really impact all those stakeholder groups. And so um, when we explained what we're trying to do and how we're trying to do it, they were um, excited about it, saw it as a feature uh, and a benefit, uh, not not a, uh, a problem that we wanted to lock up the capital for what we ended up doing was 27 years uh, with some options to renew along the way uh, in various ways to maybe extend it even beyond that 27 years. And when you're talking to the founders of these businesses, um that you're looking to buy and you're clearly having conversations with them about why y'all are different and why they have found a long-term home. Are you, is it a, we promise we will never sell you or we will be your partner as long as it makes sense? Or is it just kind of like, let's just see how this goes, but we have no intent of ever selling you. That's a great question. Yeah, we we occasionally get into this, and um, so what we say is we have we we buy with no intention of selling the company. So when we buy a company, we're not thinking about who else is going to buy it in the future. Uh, we're not thinking about um, you know kind of all the ways we could dress it up and, and put it back on the market. We're buying with no intention of ever selling, but there are good reasons and bad reasons to sell a company. And whenever I have an owner who pushes back and says, "No, wait a minute, if you're not going to commit to not selling the company," then why would I sell it to you versus just go with everyone else? And I said, no, wait, no, wait a minute. Um, you're selling the company, right? Like, mm -hmm. Yes. Well, so there's nothing inherently wrong with selling a company. There's good reasons and there's bad reasons to sell a company. And what we talk about is the good reasons are somebody else would be a better long-term home for it than we would. There would be some opportunities that they would have that we wouldn't have. Um, the tie-up would mean something and sort of the one plus one equals three principle. Um, the bad reason to sell is you just want to cash the check, get out, and go on to the next deal. And so what we commit to is we'll never pull out the rug from somebody. Anytime we talk about any type of transaction, um, you know, we would always bring it to the leadership team and have a, a really open discussion. What would this mean? How would this look? How do you think about them? What, you know, what would you like to do? And it'd be a collaborative effort as opposed to we would never just say, hey, guess what? We're putting you up for sale. Uh, it is what it is. Get on board or get off the train, right? That's not... Right. Uh, that's sort of that, that's not our style at all, and we would never do that. So it's a very different um, mentality and a very different intent than a traditional private equity. Is is that intent from this on the seller's behalf something that they have kind of committed to in their head before they meet you, or are you ever put in situations where maybe they wanted to sell and get the most, but after hearing you and your story and adventure story? 
they kind of see the light and um, maybe take a different path? Or is, is it usually kind of baked in from the beginning that this is the path forward? Well, we've had both happen. What I would say is regardless if, if you know adventures is even an option, because most people don't even think that's a possibility. And when they hear, um, if, if that matters to them, when they hear it for the first time, they're like, oh my gosh, that's <laughs> yes, that's what we wanted, right? We just didn't know that was even possible. But for most, and let's just be honest, right? For most people, um, the joke we have in our office is, you know, money's not the most important thing unless you're not the highest bidder, yeah. right? <laughs> which, which, you know, it, it, it's a joke, but it, it's true. A lot of times we hear people talk about, oh, culture is incredibly important to me. I want to take care of my people. You know, uh, there's a lot of, you know, money is certainly not the most important motivator of the sale. And, and then when it comes down to it, they just want not only the biggest um, amount of money over the, the sort of the course of the transaction, but they want the most cash at close and they could care less how much leverage is put on the business. And in that case, it's a really good indicator that if, if that's the mentality and that's truly sort of the North Star, then there's probably a lot of other issues that's created through the years that down culturally and through your systems and processes and redundancies. Um, that mentality is going to bleed down into those things and, and create uh, a lower quality asset for us um, than otherwise. I mean, I think a longer term mindset, caring who buys the business, truly caring about the people. And of course, price matters. Like, let's not, you know, yeah. let's not screw around the issue. Price certainly yeah. matters. And obviously, we're paying in the ballpark of, of what others are paying for these businesses, or we would never get a deal done. Right. But we're doing it in a way that preserves the health of the business and de-risks it from a uh, sort of existential threat of going under as a result of over leverage or these shorter time horizon, um, all, all these different things. Right. And one of the reasons I've been most fascinated by just kind of following you and uh, on social media and, and, and really reading what you write, you've done an incredible job putting your company out there and really explaining who you are, what y'all believe in. And yet you made a comment um, on another podcast about really trying to attract the right sellers and repel the people that would never be a match anyway. Um, so do you find now that as your company's grown and as your reputation in the marketplace is growing, that you start most, uh, I guess, most people bringing you opportunities are bringing you folks that kind of already fit the model that you have told the universe um, that you're about? Yeah, I would say yes. Uh, we get far more qualified candidates than I think most people do, most groups do. Um, and certainly we've put a lot of time and money into um, telling what we believe to be truths about the world and how the world works and how we think so that people can read about those things and scale. We think about it in terms of scaling conversation. So yes, we want to uh, attract the right people, repel the wrong people. But if, if those are the wrong people, we want them to be repelled far be, you know, far before they have a conversation with us and take up their time and our time. So we try to put a lot of stuff out there that kind of gives a very clear, crisp, um, perspective around how we think and who we are. And then the hope is that whether you're an intermediary or, um, you know, uh, a lawyer, a CPA, a wealth advisor, the friends or family around the seller, you know, those people would be coaching the seller that maybe they haven't heard directly, you know, of adventures, but hey, this is what they stand for. So if you don't want that, then let's not even, let's not even bother them. Right. Um, so most of the time we have people that are coming in qualified. Now, what people say and, and what they actually believe and, and how they behave are two very independent things, right? 
And so we'll oftentimes uh, get people who will say, yes, I want a long-term hold, but they'll also simultaneously say, I want an incredible amount of cash at close, which would necessitate putting three, four, five turns of debt on the company at close. And they say, well, we don't want the debt, but we also want this cash at close. It's like, those two things are mutually exclusive. You can't have both of those things. Um, So um, so anyway, so it's an interesting tug of war. And look, we're all conflicted. We're all messy. So I'm not saying that is, you know, they're messy and I'm not. I mean, we all got our stuff, but it's just interesting to see kind of what people say versus what they mean and, and how they behave. Is most of the traffic that you get inbound or do you ever find businesses that, that you absolutely love and have been observing from the outside and you're calling them saying, you know, when it's time, I would love to be your first call? So we do uh, no direct outbound marketing. And part of that is just because it's such a noisy space and we think it wastes everyone's time. Um, yeah. we, we, we've done in the past. I mean, it's probably been five years or so since we've done any of those. But um, that's how most people generate deal flow. And I think the dynamics are really odd. Um, you get lumped in with sort of everyone else. I mean, if you have a legitimate business these days, you're probably getting approached at least twice a month by somebody saying, hey, have you ever thought about taking on outside capital? Have you ever thought about selling your business? Um, do you need a liquidity event? Do you want some outside financing? I mean, all these different people that are you know, pushing different products. And so the problem is, if you get lumped in with them, you're going to kind of be put into the abyss, right? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter. It's really hard to develop a relationship. Um, what we like is when somebody says, hey, y- you should get to know adventures. And they come out of the woodwork to us and say, they raise their hand and say, hey, you know, I'd love, I'm not ready to sell. Um, you know, we may end up never selling, but I at least want to have a conversation. And we have those, I mean, quite literally every week with people who, um, you know, there's probably very low odds that we ever um, partner with them, but it's certainly a heck of a lot of fun to learn about their business. And, and by the way, those people know people. So it's a, you know, the, the network effect that we've noticed is just astounding in terms of how it compounds over time. Right. And, and I was going to get to this later, but it's kind of a time to ask it now is with the network effects. You recently wrote a book, which was fascinating, The Messy Marketplace. How, um, I guess I have multiple questions. I guess the first is, how has that book been received? And um, have, you, have you seen an uptick in folks that think like you reaching out to adventures since writing it? Yeah, the, the results from the book uh, have far exceeded our expectations. I mean, truly, when we wrote the book, we wrote it as the first five to seven hours of conversations we wanted to have with every seller. That was the, 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 the thinking going into the book. Um, we never anticipated very many people buying the book because it's such a niche thing, right? Unless you're looking to sell your business and you really want to get into the nitty gritty details of it. Um, it's probably not, you know, light bedtime reading, right? It'll probably put you right to sleep, which, you know, by the way, might be uh, an incredible uh, use of the product. But um, yeah, it's like the uh, book equivalent of Ambien. Um, But, um, you know, we, um, since writing it, I think what it's done is it's given something that people can pass around and say, uh, you know, hey, you sh- have you ever heard of Adventures? And they say, no, what are you talking about? Here, here, borrow my copy. Here, use my copy. Here, I'll send you a copy. And so we've, um, you know, uh, we certainly sold far more books than we ever dreamed uh, at this point. And it's been fun to get all the direct uh, uh, outreach as a result of it. I mean, I think it's generated, gosh, well in excess of 20 uh, yeah, proprietary opportunities that we never would have had any other way. 
And you oh. know, people said, oh, well, I didn't fully appreciate what you all were doing. I didn't fully appreciate how good of a fit you were. Now, we didn't write the book as a business card. Uh, we wrote the book to truly be able to scale conversation. But, mm. um, you know, as a result of reading it, they thought we were a good fit. Right. What was the experience like writing the book? How long, how long did it take you? And um, how did you, who all was involved in getting to a final product? Yeah. So uh, writing a book is a terrible process. And I don't think anybody who's ever written a book would say anything other than that. Um, there were, gosh, all the people. So it's, from the time that I was finished with the original manuscript till the time we published was almost a year. And the, um, the number of people that touched the book in some way is probably 70 or 80 people. I mean, it's unbelievable. All the feedback we got, we sent out manuscripts and got people um, to be able to respond to it, what hit them, what they didn't like. Um, and it was an incredible polishing process. Um, apparently, the book needed a lot of polish, <laughs> far more than I would have liked. Um, but, uh, you know, my bad. So, um, yeah, I, I would say writing a book, uh, you know, and when I say writing a book, I mean, we could have published um, what we had in the very beginning, and it probably would have been 80% as good. And if you're fine with publishing something that's, you know, not nearly as good as it could be, I, I think it's a pretty easy, straightforward process. The hard part is editing it down and condensing it and getting it to be a really nice, tight package with no errors and really crisp and clear on what you're trying to communicate. That process is just really hard. Yeah, no, it was it was no BS. It was straight to the point. I, I found it fascinating. Um, I, I I loved it. How, how much uh, of you. your sales have have been off of Amazon, and have you sold books any other way than just using Amazon? Yeah, it's all been through Amazon. So I mean, we we've bought books to give out to some people, but that's only been a couple hundred. I mean, yep. we'll, uh, um, almost all the book sales are just through Amazon, through people uh, hearing about it and grabbing it. Cool. Well, jumping back, so so you you have um, a company's come in. Uh, y'all have y'all have interest in it. Um, what are some of the conversations or questions that you love to ask the owners of the business really early on to either get to a quick no or continue moving forward? I would say that the two biggest questions we like to ask, uh, we, one we call the magic wand question, which is if you could wave a magic wand and create the perfect you know, scenario, perfect partnership, perfect buyer, um, perfect scenario for you to exit the company, what does that look like? And, and just like stop talking and let them go. And you'd be amazed at where people go with that question. Um, and it really goes to the heart of what's on their mind and what are they thinking about? And people, you know, say, you know, kind of half joking, well, I just want a big check and to walk off in the sunset. And I say, do you think that's possible? And they're like, no, probably not. But that's really what I want. Well, now, you know, now there's a tension there. Right. And by the way, we want people to be honest because we'll find it out eventually. Right. I mean, the, the, the sale process is a um, brutally in-depth, uh, difficult process. Um, you know, hence the name of the book, The Messy Marketplace. Um, it is just a, it is a challenging process all around. And so what we're trying to do is uncover maybe the big landmines that wouldn't be obvious up front. Um, the other one that I would say is um, really important to us is how decisions are made in the company. So oftentimes we find this tension with sellers where they'll say, um, well, I work 80 hours a week, but I don't have to work any, any time at all, right? I mean, I'm involved in every decision, but everyone else makes the decisions, not me, right? And you're right. like, well, 
wait a minute, both those things can't be true. And um, oftentimes what we see, especially in the smaller end of the, of the scale, is companies that are designed around the personality, the skill set, um, the expertise of one person, or maybe at most two or three people. And that ends up being a, a pretty challenging uh, transition because all the goodwill and the value of the business is tied up in those people. And so what we like to see is the owner and the senior leadership that has pushed down that expertise down into the systems, to multiple layers of leadership, and that decision-making is far more organic as opposed to command and control and centralized, um, just sort of in general. So I would say those are the two biggest things. I mean, you know, having a willing seller, is, as funny as that sounds, I don't know how many conversations we've had where people at the end of it, I mean, we go through a pretty in-depth process and they say, well, I wasn't really serious about selling now. And we're like, okay. <laughs> why are we talking? So, yeah. I mean, we always ask up front, and this is something I never would have imagined having to ask, you know, 10 years ago is, do you want to sell the business? <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, and, and, and sometimes you'll be like, no, not really. It's like, okay, great. Uh, happy to have the conversation. Let's, you know, keep in touch. And when you are really serious about doing it, like, then we can go down the path. For sure. And how much of that do you think comes from adventures being a, uh, a real dose of reality and, you know, people that are, are so deep in their business, y'all are the folks that, uh, whether they knew it or not, kind of taught them about their own business or made them think about it in ways that, you know, prior to meeting y'all, um, they had just never thought about it before that way. Yeah, I mean, I, I think most people, when they, um, they want their people to be successful, they want the company to be successful. Um, I, I don't think that we usually are bringing up things they haven't thought about. I think we're maybe bringing uh, a different level of rigor and a different type of skill set than maybe they're used to, um, especially on the execution side to the table that then um, in the, opens their eyes to maybe what other possibilities would be. But I would say we haven't we haven't come across you know uh, many situations where uh, we get involved, we start talking about things, and they say, "Oh my gosh, now I'm re-energized and reinvigorated. Now I want to go do all this stuff." It's usually, I mean, look, after running a business for 20 or 30 years, you're exhausted. I mean, I've been running a business for a little over a decade, and I'm exhausted. Now I have three young girls, but you know, maybe that's part of the reason too. But it's yeah. just hard. I mean, it is a daily grind. Um, you know, we, we joke that running a business is, you know, like eating glass and getting punched in the face, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's just a hard, hard deal to do every day. And so you get to a point in your life where you're like, I, I want to take some chips off the table. I want to de-risk. I want to spend a little less time worrying. And I think once you reach that point, I mean, it's kind of a flip that happens. And we can kind of tell now when a, when a seller is more in exploratory, um, you know, I want to go on Zillow and get my Zestimate, you know, for my house yeah. type mode yeah. uh, versus um, serious about selling the business. You offer a good ad vestment. Exactly. Exactly. What is your role from the beginning of a deal to the end of the deal? Like, how do you think about what you do uh, from start to finish? You mean me, me personally? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I'm close to functionally irrelevant now to adventures, um, which is both exciting and kind of disheartening is we've hired so many darn talented people yep. that um, I find myself less and less being necessary. 
um, and more and more double checking and, and kind of helping coach people through situations that maybe I've seen that they haven't before. But for the most part, I mean, uh, we've got an incredible team that's curating the deals that we're getting in that are having those first conversations. I mean, we're even trending toward away from uh, me being on first site visits. And um, I mean, I'm always involved in the structuring of the deal and especially deals that need to get more creative with sort of where's the judgment of, of how to balance valuation with terms. I mean, um, you know, the, the old phrase, uh, you set the price, I set the terms really, really matters. And I don't think most people appreciate how, um, you know, we can deal with almost any price somebody wants. Uh, we're just going to put deal terms around it. So there's a lot of creativity that goes into um, balancing uh, more complexity and creativity uh, with just trying to get the deal done and, and, and having a straightforward path to doing so. I'm really glad you brought that up because, you know, it's something that I have really picked up on and, you know, again, and just reading some of your stuff is, is structuring the deal and your ability to kind of take a situation and strip it down to what the incentives are in the room. And you can make the argument that buying business is just a lot about just making sure that incentives are right. I mean, you're trying to buy all, if not the majority of a business yet still keep everybody on board equally as motivated to keep running it as they had before. Do you think that's just something that you've learned over time or is some of that a gift? Um, and if it is something you can learn, like, is it just learned through experience or are there other ways that, that folks could learn kind of incentives? Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. Well, first of all, I think all of it's a gift. I mean, even the, the, the learning aspect of it is, um, uh, is, is certainly something that I feel feel blessed to be be given. Um, you know, uh, there are tools in the toolbox. So, so to demystify the deal making process, the way I think about it is, you have a toolbox of certain tools, right? So whether it's an earnout structure, a note, a downside protected note. I mean, if you just take the note structure, you have an amortization schedule. You could go interest only. Um, you can adjust the interest rate up and down. You can uh, do some sort of peg for some downside protection. How you peg it matters. Do you peg it off revenue, gross profit, net income, owner earnings, EBITDA? So there's a lot of these, you know, sort of big chunky tools we have in the toolkit that we use all the time. And then a lot of nuance with how do you combine potentially uh, buyer finance debt with seller finance debt with equity being injected in? Well, how do all those three, three things interact and what are the... Um, what, what are the incentives and uh, that those are providing in different ways? So I think that the combination of those things is where the art comes in. The science is, I mean, it's very straightforward what the tools are. And, and there are, aren't that many tools. It's just how you apply them. It's just a matter of, you know, judgment and then how you think other people will react to them. Once you've bought a business, it, and I know every deal has its own merits, are you looking for the management team or the owner to stay on for a certain length of time um, or at least a minimum amount of time, or is it just every deal is different? Yeah. So we're, we're always looking for the leadership of the company to transition with us. So that's a non-starter. If there's not leadership that wants to transition, and when I say transition is two to four years, kind of in that range. Um, it, we always want that to take place. If there are, um, sometimes the seller is out of day-to-day -day leadership of the business, which makes that a lot easier because that means the leadership team is already experienced with not being clouded by the involvement of the seller. 
I think where it gets messier is when you're trying to strip away what is the seller saying their involvement is versus what is their actual involvement. And of course, we always uh, will discount the things that we do in many ways as being obvious, right? Because we do them. Um, right. And a lot of times organizations, when you pull out the person who's been doing these quote unquote obvious things, they're not obvious to anyone else. And so we have, we're really, really careful with documenting and understanding what those range of decisions, how they're being made, who's making them, and, and sort of the practicality boots on the ground aspect of it. Yep. It, it's safe to assume Adventures has a similar model to Berkshire in that a lot of um, operations are decentralized to the portfolio company. And you've talked a lot about this, that kind of imaginary line of, Adventures is here for you, but we're we're you are your own company and you need to run it. How how do you think about that line and kind of not crossing it? Well, I think the line moves. It's a great question. I think the line moves, and and certainly, I mean, we could talk about Berkshire and and sort of the public perception versus the reality. And, and I would say that line for Berkshire's uh, moved a heck of a lot more than uh, maybe most people realize. But okay. for us, um, th that that line moves around what the company needs. So these are all independently staffed, independently led, self-contained operating companies. So what we like to say is without us, you'd be just fine. Now, hopefully with us and with the resources we can bring to bear. And, and you know, we've seen quite a bit across the portfolio. We have a, a very unusual catbird seat to, into a lot of industries through what we're able to see and through the companies that we own. And so uh, we're able to help surround them with a with a judgment and with access to resources that are unusual. Let's put it that way. Maybe not unique, but certainly unusual for the size of companies that they would have uh, or that they are. And so when the company is going through periods of growth or distress, I would say both are equally stressing on the company. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's interesting. Everyone everyone thinks it's all just fun and games when things are going great. When things are going great, it means you're growing a ton, which means you're hiring a ton, which means you've got more customer problems. You've likely got more capital intensity and big capital allocation decisions. So we typically get more involved uh, when there's uh, choppy waters, right, on the upside or the downside. Right. Um, if it's smooth sailing and look like the CEO's happy, the leadership team's happy, everything's going great, uh, but it's just fairly, you know, we're, we're plodding along, right? Um, then what in the world would we need to do to get involved? Like we, we have a good governance system that, they, that everyone's bought into and understands. And I mean, that's kind of the table stakes. But I mean, like, what are we going to do? We're going to call and say, okay, now, Everything's great. Now, what if we launch this huge new thing? And oftentimes you just get into these spin cycles of wasting a lot of time. And so we like to have um, our involvement be largely driven by being asked to help um, with the occasional injection when we know there are um, things that need to be done and that we can be helpful in. Yeah, that was that was kind of leading into a, the next question is. Um and you kind of answered it in being asked is, have you ever recalled the time where the company was so dead set on a decision and you were so dead set on the opposite of that decision where y'all had to interject or how, what, how do you resolve kind of conflict? Yeah. Well, for, first of all, to, to, to set expectations, I mean, there's, it, it's people, right? right. So the, the company leadership are people, were people, uh, as I said earlier, people are messy. 
um, there's always going to be conflict between people. So to, to portray that there's not conflict, I think is just, um, it just doesn't even make any sense, right? right? There's always gonna be conflict. Now, I wouldn't say it's bad conflict. I would say we've had challenging conversations in the past when there are big disagreements. And I literally can't remember the last time we told a portfolio company what to do. Like right. I, it, it, I'm, I'm trying to like rack my brain I literally can't, I mean, I literally can't remember the last time. So oftentimes it is just a difference of perspective and a right. difference of information. And it's our job to convey the information that we have. And it's their job to convey the information that they have. Um, certainly when it's about operating things and like, you know, whether it's capital allocation decisions um, or personnel decisions, I mean, the, the people in the company are always going to have a far superior position of knowledge to us. Um, and it's our job to be humble in coming to them and saying, hey, we're not uh, second guessing you. We're trying to understand that this is what it looks like to us is going on. Now tell us if, if we're misunderstanding the situation. And like 99% of the time, we're just misinterpreting the information we have. And they can quickly and easily say, oh, yep, totally get it. That's what it looks like. No, this is what's actually going on. Oh, great. No problem. We yep. move along, right? Um, I would say very, very rarely is it not obvious after you get all the information uh, communicated to everyone what the obvious decision should be. Yep. Okay. Yeah, that, no, that makes total sense. The You have tools uh, when you're negotiating a deal um, and the incentives. Do you have any like common tools from once you've bought the business? These are the typical things that AdVentures works on with companies or is that situation by situation? Yeah, there's certainly categories. I mean, first of all, we, through working with them in due diligence, we have ideas about where their strengths and weaknesses are, right? And and some strengths are well-known and some strengths are not well-known. Some weaknesses are well-known and some weaknesses are not well-known. And we're trying to categorize them and, and really assess where we think uh, the lowest hanging fruit would be. Um, I mean, all of us succumb to... Um, sort of the normal, ordinary course of life taking over and us missing an accumulation of um, sort of tiny little decisions over time that, that manifest into maybe bigger decisions that become obvious. But then, you know, we're just like, look, it's fine. It's good enough. Let's not rock the boat. I think when we're transitioning, we have an opportunity to kind of level set and say, okay, why are we doing these things that everyone agrees that um, we maybe shouldn't be doing. And oftentimes the seller will say, I don't know, I just have a certain amount of time in the day and I, I don't know why we're not doing them. And we'll say, great. Um, does everyone agree we should be doing those? Yeah, let's do them. Okay, great. Can we all just agree that we're going to do them then? Um, so now the, the categories that we like to look at are um, sales and marketing. And, and, and I would say, you know, to get more uh, granular under the, the marketing umbrella, you know, advertising and lead gen specifically. So how are we um, uh, getting uh, new customers into the pipeline? How are we building education and trust with them? And then, uh, you know, what is that sales process for converting them into clients? And we think deeply about those things because I've never met a company that doesn't want more customers. And I've never met a company that doesn't struggle in some way with finding new customers. Uh, especially with their customer acquisition costs. And so we're, we're oftentimes coming in to the company and we have an unusual skill set in this because of our background and how, how Adventures got started. Um, we were in the marketing advertising uh, lead generation space. And so we feel very comfortable that 
Um, we're not going to be the experts uh, usually who quote unquote do the work, but we know people who really know what they're doing. And to be frank, this is a really big issue in smaller companies is the selection bias of vendors to small businesses is usually biased towards people who aren't fantastic at what they do. So if you are really, really good at marketing, you typically don't stay working with smaller companies. You typically move up market where you can generate higher fees and more volume of those higher fees, right? On a per hour basis or however you want to think about it. Um, So you get paid better and in higher volume. Um, If you're, if, if you've been around for quite a while and claim to know what you're doing in the marketing space, Um, and you're working with a company that has a $100,000 marketing budget, chances are you're not very good or there's some material defect in how you go about delivering those services. Right. And so we're able to bring a level of expertise to the table uh, through people that we work with, through some internal resources that we've built over time that are able to assess and um, diagnose what sort of – changes in strategy might we need to do that are fairly obvious. Um, Same goes in, I would say, in governance type things. I mean, whether it's uh, HR and benefits and accounting, finance, capital structure, I mean, we'll often come in to uh, a smaller company and lower their cost of capital through a line of credit or through financing that they're doing, you know, depending on the industry, by a, a pretty big percentage. I mean, you know, 20, 30, 40%. Um, which has a material uh, effect on the um, I- income of the company. Uh, and it's just less resources going out. So um, th- there's a lot of those things that we're able to come in. Now, oftentimes, big changes in the company require an incredible amount of effort. And oftentimes, the companies are maxed out in what they can take on. And so we always build a force-ranked list of uh, uh, projects that we think are you know, a combination of high probability and high return. And we start knocking down the list on what we think is uh, possible to be uh, to be accomplished. God, it's fascinating. This might be a really loaded question, or may- maybe it's not. Is there like a common thing? So, if if if, if you're if one of our listeners here is a small business, um, and I just said to you, what are the things that you find that m- small businesses aren't doing well in marketing? that they could easily do to help build their funnel? Are there like kind of hacks or, you know, <laughs> inexpensive strategies that, that people could think about or, um, you know, again, is it case by case? Yeah. Well, so I, I would say, yes, there are. The problem is they're just nothing's easy. If it was easy, everyone would do it. Um, there's some real material problems with um, you got to have a, a basis of understanding of what you're trying to do. So um, sometimes it's it's really, really smart to invest in um, pay-per-click advertising through social media, right, through a Facebook or Google. Um, sometimes it's really important to educate your customers. You've already got the traffic. You're just not educating them well and invest more in, in content. Uh, sometimes you don't understand who's coming to your website and what they're doing. You don't have a good idea of who your customer is. And so you need to do all kinds of heat mapping and analytics and understand where they're coming to and where they're going to and how much time they spend on site and which pages they're going to. So all of that, you know, kind of swirls together. I mean, brand is another thing. I mean, I don't know how many times I would say if you, if you pulled the average small business owner, they would say, you know, branding is BS. Yeah. Branding's not BS. Like brand matters. It's just you got to have a proper framing around it. Do we think that you know 
a B2B company should go and invest in a $150,000 logo package from a, you know, specialized agency like no i think that'd be really dumb but like if your logo conveys that you you know you're in the 1960s like (laughs) you know there's some low-hanging fruit there like could you spend 500 bucks on you know an online resource and get a you know a a portfolio of logos to choose from that are going to be a dramatic upgrade yeah like should you do that probably But like all these things require effort and if i said that you know uh, uh, the average small business owner you know, hey, why haven't you gone on and uh, gotten, you know, gone on 99designs and gotten your logo redone? They would say, what's a 99designs? Yep. Like, yep. they just don't even know what resources were out there. So, again, what we're doing is not magic. I mean, we call it the table stakes of business hygiene. It is just like, what is the base level stuff that you can do in every area in order to make sure that that's not harming you for growth? Right. Yeah, you were tweeting the other day, or maybe it was somebody and you had commented, but you were talking something along the lines of you were shocked at how many small businesses do not use Google Analytics. What did yeah. you, what does Google Analytics do for a business? Yeah, so Google Analytics is it's just this, this little software package that you put on your website that, that, that Google provides for free. So it's free software. You don't have to pay anything for it. And um, they tell you who's coming, where they came from, what they're doing on your website, how long they're spending on it. It just gives you a, a look into what's actually happening on your website. And it can track, you know, conversions. There's a lot of things it can do with whistles and bells. But, but fundamentally, if you believe that people are researching you and potentially buying from you through your website, which I would say is 99.99% of businesses, right. understanding who these people are is important and making sure you treat them well and making sure you haven't accidentally um, created friction on your website and make sure that it's easy to contact you. I mean, there's nothing more frustrating than I, I want to go buy something. I want to engage with a business and it literally won't let me. Like I had this happen yesterday uh, with a hotel I was trying to book. And every time I got to their, the checkout page, it deleted all my information, made me start over. And I went through it three times and then I abandoned and got a different hotel. Yep. Right. Well, if, if that hotel all of a sudden saw literally every single person is dropping off on your, on your final page, it would probably be a pretty good clue that maybe something's going on there. Yep. Yeah. So I read- it can be the canary in the coal mine. It can be, you know, business intelligence. It's just a combination. I mean, we should be able to know who buys from us. Yep. If you're listening to this podcast and you have a business, that's not on Google analytics. You have been spoken to. <laughs> the problem is most of the people that, that hear that and they'll say, yeah, we should do that. And then something's going to come up. They're going to get distracted. And by the way, I get it. It is a nice fight, right? You have to allocate your resources. And then some client is screaming at you yeah. um, just from an empathy perspective. Like I totally understand why most people have not done stuff like that. Yep. I read something the other day that like 50% of transactions don't end up happening because of the process of checking out or the length of it and how many, how many transactions drop purely because of an inefficient checkout process. It's crazy. Yep. Doesn't surprise me at all. I know I'm kind of bouncing a little bit backwards here. Uh, You're very vocal about owner earnings over as a metric instead of EBITDA. What is owner earnings and why not EBITDA? 
Well, so EBITDA, I think, can be a useful metric, but it just tells you something. It, it tells you one thing, right? And it doesn't tell you how most people use it, which is an approximation for the earnings power of the company. So it, if obviously, if you're talking about EBITDA, so what's the EBIT and what's the DA? Right. So depending on what the DA is, the depreciation and the amortization, that tells you a lot about the characteristics of the company, especially depreciation, which is uh, sort of an average of the capital expenditures of the company, if you want to think about it that way, sort of a normalized capital expenditures. Right. So if I present two businesses, uh, one that is making $5 million a year and has you know $100,000 a year of depreciation, and another business is making $5 million a year of EBITDA, right? and has uh, $2 million of, of depreciation. Those are fundamentally different businesses that should be valued differently. And the implications of those uh, businesses in terms of growth trajectory, required capital to grow, what happens in a downturn, all these things, how much assets you're buying, um, all these things are radically different between those two companies purely by looking at the depreciation. And so um, the other thing that, that EBITDA doesn't tell you in most cases is what the owner's paying themselves. And I think this can vary widely, right? I mean, depending on what the business is, the location, um, you know, owners should be paying themselves well, independent of what it would be to own the business if they're in leadership, right? right. And so this is, again, where we're trying to parse through what is the leadership of the company compared to the ownership of the company? What's the depreciation? I would say another key piece would be the operating interest. So not transaction debt that's put on there, right? That shouldn't count. But like, if you are an inventory heavy business um, that is using uh, lines of credit or whatever the mechanism is to finance your inventory and you're carrying a constant ongoing balance uh, of interest, right? That's accruing, like right. that should count against your earnings because that's part of your business model. Like you're choosing to do that. And so, again, capital intensity gets represented in different ways. So, you know, the inventory levels are a level of capital intensity, which are really different than what is the investment in physical plant, right? The depreciation as a proxy for CapEx that is being needed. And you got to, again, just paint the picture. So we think owner earnings as being, you know, EBITDA minus sort of normalized CapEx minus operating interest minus a normalized salary for the, for the, the owner assuming they're in leadership of the company. That's basically what owner earnings is. I mean, there's some whistles and bells that you can put on there depending on the situation, but it's really just trying to say, okay, as the owner of the company who's not working in the business, what does it feel like from a cash flow perspective pre-tax to sit in the owner's seat? How much money are you actually making um, right. above and beyond the reinvestment that you need to keep it on the same trajectory? Is it fair that most businesses from a that are being marketed or presented from a, what they're doing in EBITDA as opposed to what they're doing in owner earnings? No one presents an owner earnings. I mean, yeah. because owner earnings are always going to be lower than EBITDA. And I wouldn't even say anymore, EBITDA is the problem. We're seeing adjusted EBITDA and the adjustments are just insane. Like, I mean, we're seeing stuff that, that is marketed as an $8 million EBITDA company that when you really strip it down, makes like two, two and a half million dollars a year. And it's like, well, yeah, if you don't count 15 holes, if you only count 15 holes of your 18 holes in golf, you'll shoot a pretty darn good score. Like yeah. you'd be the best in the world, right? Yep. The only problem is that's not golf. Yep. Right? <laughs> so, um, you know, it, 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 you can't, I mean, we've had people sub out, I mean, marketing costs. We've had them sub out, well, we have, uh, you know, five unprofitable locations, so you shouldn't count those. Like, w wait, what? 
Do, yeah. do you have you know 15 that are profitable and five that are unprofitable? And so you're saying we should count all of the profitable ones and not count the unprofitable ones? Like, how does that make sense, right? So mm-hmm. you, you have to parse through. There are some legitimate adjustments in every deal. Um, there are certain things that are non-recurring, although what I would say is um, the weird part about non-recurring expenses is that they always seem to recur. It's just weird. Yeah. <laughs> They're non-occurring except for they occur every month. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, and when we speak about it, it seems so obvious that you would never want to buy an $8 million EBITDA business that actually has that behind the curtain, but they somehow, there still seems to be buyers. Is that because maybe they're a strategic or the, the person buying it is inexperienced or do usually deals like that kind of end up never getting done? Well, so I would say is, um, at $8 million, um, to use the example of an $8 million business that's going to two, I, I think there's an argument to be made that that business could be bought, um, depending on the situation. You just wouldn't pay based on an $8 million earning number, right? right? You'd be paying more based on a $2 million, or maybe $2.5 million, $3 million earning number. And so right. if you normalize it out, and that's what we're trying to get with, with owner earnings, is to get to a normalized state where it's all sort of on equal footing then I think you're fine, right? You can evaluate the business for what it is and decide if it's worth it or not. Um, so so it's not so much that, um, it's just p- things are being framed in a way to get people's attention and get them excited and try to anchor them uh, and sort of use human psychology to uh, to distort the process in a way that clearly is, is it shouldn't be done. Right. Um, but look, uh, you know, it's not untrue that that business is an $8 million EBITDA business. It should, right. should you know, just highly irrelevant. It's just probably true that it's not going to sell on a four times EBITDA model. It might sell on a half a times EBITDA model or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or, you know, it, it'll get a five times multiple on two and a half million dollars of owner earnings, right. right? Which looks really, really weird when you compare it to $8 million of EBITDA. Yep. I've got... Two more business questions and then a few kind of personal questions, and then we'll head to the finish line. Um, You're very vocal about wanting uh, to buy boring businesses. So my first question is, how do you think about what boring is? And my second question is, what industries interest you right now? Yeah, great question. So, so boring to us, we say it kind of tongue in cheek, right? Because no one, uh, we don't consider any of the businesses that we're involved in, nor hardly any businesses to be actually boring. When we say boring, we mean that the general public uh, would not see the thing being done or the thing being sold and say, gosh, I want to quit what I'm doing and wouldn't it be great to do that thing? Right. So I've, I've never driven past a house getting uh, re-roofed and said, you know what I want to do is get out of my air-conditioned car and go, you know, pound some nails into the, <laughs> into the roof, right? Yeah. Um, so, so we would say that the sort of the inverse of boring is not exciting, it's sexy, right? And sexy businesses are restaurants and film companies and software, technology, world-changing, game-changing technology, right? So like sort of the hype cycle, right, is engaged. Um, and it's stuff that we can relate to as consumers because we use it a lot. Um, boring stuff is is like the underpinnings of the economy. It's like the pipes that no one ever realized are there that uh, carry their water every day. 
right? right? And so you'd be amazed at the diversity of the economy and just how large the economy is and understanding that sort of every piece of concrete that got poured got poured by a company. Uh, every piece of concrete that breaks gets repaired by a company. Um, yep. You know, if you if you start looking at like everywhere I go now, it's it's a disease. But like I, I I go and like try to break down all the different companies that created the world that I see around me and right. who they are and sort of what the supply chain looks like and how you can disintermediate different steps. And I wonder, you know, I wonder what kind of vertical integration versus horizontal integration and all these things that it, it, for really boring stuff like you know they make the pins that go into the hinges on doors. I guarantee you there's an incredibly big company out there that does just that, right? Or at least a division of a company that does just that. And so those are the things you never think about. It's just a hinge on a door, let alone the pin that goes in the hinge, right? Yep. Um, so anyway, so, you know, I would say for us, boring is more um, steady, um, sort of uh, not explosive in growth. I mean, these companies are growing nicely, um, full cycle, if, if, if they're run well. Um, but these are just uh, more mundane. They serve their customers. Um, they're really useful and necessary to the economy, but they're not lighting the world on fire and, and no one's going to want to quit their job to uh, go do that work. Right. And the second is, are there any industries uh, that stand out to you right now that you're, you're interested in more than others? You know, it's an interesting question because we don't get excited about industries on purpose. I think yeah. it's a dangerous thing to get too excited about industries because um, you start putting blinders on and you start missing the good stuff that's, that's coming past you. Right. And you start getting excited about forcing a fit. So right. I by no means think that people shouldn't specialize, especially upmarket private equity. You have to specialize. But for us, like we actually look at each business on, on its own merits, independent of the industry it's in. Now, there's certain industries that we are predisposed against, but we because we think there are dynamics that we can't predict and we just don't understand them. And so we, you know, you sort of put them in a too hard pile. But um, for the most part, you know, we're equally as excited about um, the you know solar industry as we are the HVAC business, as we are um executive search model as we i mean it, it, it's just it's equally exciting to us to look at those things we're trying to understand what is the underlying position of the company and how do they sit in the market with relationship to competitors to the customers uh what are the threats to their business model um you know uh, how good their competitive advantage and durable their competitive advantages all those different types of things right I said that I had one last question on business, but I have actually one more. Um, just getting back to really quick permanent capital um, and convincing people to give you money that they won't see for 27 plus years. And, and there's a lack of people out there that believe in that. I guess my question is, how long did it take to raise something like that? And the second is, um, when you're dis when you eventually start distributing back to investors how uh and i and i've been thinking a lot about this how do you um by permanent you're saying i want to hold it uh i want to keep investing it in the the partnership for long-term growth does distributing capital ever come off as like a sign of like well, I have nothing better to do with the money, so I'm just going to start giving it back. Like, is it ever looked at as a sign of maybe weakness? Is that a is that a weird question? 
No, it's not a weird question at all. I think it depends on the situation. So um, what we um, sort of answer a couple different questions there. One, anytime you're doing something different with a investment structure, it's always going to take you longer to find people who get it. And, and it, you know, most people that are allocating capital are finding reasons to say no. And if you're always looking for a reason to say no, something, anything new that's untested or that looks untested on the, on the face is going to be easy to dismiss. So I can tell you that we talked to a, a lot of people that uh, laughed us out of a room, and that's totally fine. And, and by the way, um, you know, maybe they're right. I don't know. <laughs> We're not all the way on the finish line yet. But um, what I would say is the people who got what we we're trying to do, look, we're trying to own these businesses like a family would. How does a family own a business? Does a family ever take capital out of a business? Of course they do, yeah. right? Is the family saying by taking capital out, we don't have anything good to do with it in the business? Of course not. Now, impliedly, you are saying that whenever you're uh, distributing out cash out of a business, that there are other things that can be done with it that are, can generate a higher probability, higher rate of return, combination of those, right, um, than what can be done in the companies, or you would have kept it in the companies. And similarly, in the structure that we have, um, we set a high bar, uh, which we think is uh, certainly attainable in most of the businesses, if not all the businesses, for some of the projects, um, but it's a pretty high bar in the companies. It varies a little from company to company, depending on the situation. Um, right. But everything above that, we asked that the cash be sent up and and, and out. And um, we did our first distribution out to uh, uh, shareholders in January. We'll likely do another one here in the summer. And uh, probably every six months uh, to a year, depending on the cadence and kind of what happens after that. And so um, it just as a family would, right? Yeah. I mean, that's how a family would treat the business. So um, the worst thing I think you can do is have a bunch of money pile up on your balance sheet. And, you know, I call this the bladder problem, right? The, the more money you have, the more likely you're going to piss it away, yeah. right? I mean, it, it, it's really easy to have a bunch of money pile up on the balance sheet and say, we've got to do something with it. And all of a sudden you're doing things that are incredibly risky or incredibly low return on invested capital that just don't make any sense in the grand scheme of things, but you got to do something, right? Right. Yep. That makes total sense. Thank you for uh, providing that detail. Um, I'm going to get a little... Uh, a bit personal and then we'll wrap up here in the next 10 minutes. How much time do you spend reading? Uh, it varies. Um, so I have three little girls, four and a half, two and a half and a newborn. And so uh, prior to them, uh, I, I read more <laughs> and depending on uh, what happens at work, um, you know, uh, obviously I, I have to be responsive and want to be responsive. And so I would say on, um, most days I'm reading, I, I have a routine where I get up and read and pray uh, every morning, probably for 25, 30 minutes on the low end to maybe an hour, hour and 15 minutes on the high end. And um, it just, it, it's a, it's a thing I look, you know, really look forward to every morning, get a cup of coffee uh, and, uh, and just settle in and uh, be able to uh, read and think is uh, a, a beautiful thing. So um, I, I, I do go through periods of time where I read more. Uh, it's usually when things are a little calmer at, at the office and at home. And, you know, I'm hopeful that uh, I have seasons ahead of me where that'll be possible. Yep. I'm about to have my second daughter. So I'm, I'm entering the same, same world and I totally get it. How, it, how important is your morning routine to you? Um, and I guess what time do you wake up in the morning and get, and get the day started? 
Uh, yeah, morning routine is uh, very important to me. Um, I am usually up between, I'd call it 4.45 and 5.30, kind of wow. in that ballpark. Um, but I'm going to bed at 9 to 10, kind of yep. in that ballpark. So, I mean, um, look, I, I think it's important to get sleep. I, I'm certainly, um, that's not, uh, I think there's no, <laughs> there's no valor in, uh, you know, claiming that you don't sleep much. Um, I think yep. that's just stupid. So. Um, uh, and, and look, if I need to, I, I had never, I, I haven't set an alarm except to catch a plane in a long time. So, um, I try to wake up naturally and, and look, there are some mornings where I just need more sleep and I'll end up sleeping in until, you know, six, six fifteen, yeah. uh, maybe six thirty. So, um, it just, it, it depends, but I, you know, I, I definitely think that time in the morning to kind of settle in, think about things, recenter, get your day planned. Uh, it, it's an important piece. Yeah. Do you have a favorite book? I have a favorite book. I mean, gosh, I have a, a ton of books that, that are that are near and dear to my heart. Um, um, I mean, I, I'm always finding new books to read. I mean, that's probably one of my favorite things to do is to ask people who uh, who I meet, you know, what's, what's sort of your, your top two or three books and uh, uh, see what they come back with. I always get some pretty unusual recommendations. Yep. <laughs> Tells you about who they are, probably. For sure. What is something you believe that nobody else believes? Something I believe that no one else believes. Yeah, I don't. Very few gosh, people. I, that very few people believe. Um, maybe I'm just unoriginal. I mean, I, I mean, I think probably in the finance space, I'm one of the few people that believe that um, the less debt, the better, almost always. Yep. Um, it, it seems like. And look, I get the math of debt. Like if things go well, things are going to go really well with debt. You know, um, it's an amplifier. It's never the cause of a return, but it's certainly an amplifier of a return. And I, I get that you can generate higher returns on equity by using debt. I mean, that's not it's not a mystery. Um, I don't I guess I don't understand the reason why um, people on average are so in a hurry to get rich versus to do well over a longer period of time. I, I've just seen, I've seen quite a few people flame out. And, and certainly I'm not going to say I'm immune to this. Like um, we've used debt in the past and it's worked out well. And man, when it works out well, it feels like, you know, a superhuman capability, right? I mean, the return is incredible. And you say, well, gosh, let's do more of that. What you don't see is the risk that you tolerate to do it. And I think um, being acutely aware and, and borderline paranoid about risk is something that I think more people should do. And I think even me saying that I'm trying to preach that to myself, right? Um, when you think there's the least risk is when you're probably tolerating the most risk. Yep. No, absolutely. Uh, you think some of that is kind of the envy that has been built in the generation of social media and, and the internet that is causing people to want to get places much quicker than, than is usually natural? I mean, I don't know. Uh, you can look back through the history of finance. I mean, if you ever want to see an example of this, like look at like a Jesse Livermore um, who operated in the, in the twenties and thirties and, and uh, went boom and bust, you know, many times through his life through the use of, uh, of leverage. And I mean, uh, I don't know how much more social media is amplifying it. I mean, I think it's just the animal spirits that we have that are, you know, at work trying to 
get the most as fast as we can and hoard it away and, uh, you know, give us some comfort for a rainy day. I mean, I think it's, I think it's a perfectly reasonable thing. I, I, I do think, though, that um, it is highly detrimental and far more detrimental uh, to a wider variety of people than we give it credit for. I mean, the lives that I've seen uh, significantly harmed by uh, the flagrant use of debt uh, is astounding to me. Yep. And it's, you, you got to remember, it's not just you potentially losing your money if you're the one structuring the deal. It is you're impacting lots of families and potentially generations of families as a result of your behavior. Uh, and I think if you if you think about it in those terms and the weightiness of that, I think it, it um, hopefully gives people pause. That's fascinating. All right, a couple more. If you could give advice to your 21 year old self, what would it be? My goodness, doubt your doubts. <laughs> um, good golly. I, I mean, I um, uh, you know I, I think everyone who's 21 by nature is arrogant. Um, but man, I had, I, I was a special type of arrogant at 21. And, um, I thought I knew how the world worked and I thought I knew what I would want to do in it and how it should be done. And I would just say is, um, you know, uh, you didn't know nearly as much as you think you did. And, and I, and by the way, I'll probably say the same thing about, you know, myself today, uh, in 20 years. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm cognizant that we're, you know, we're never going to be happy when we look back on who we were um, but certainly at 21, I would say, um, you know, make sure you fully appreciate when you reject one thing, you're adopting another thing and make sure you understand the implications of, of, of what you uh, just adopted. Man, I love that. All right. My last one. Well, maybe it's kind of two, but do you have a mentor or mentors? You know, I would say I, I've been blessed to be mentored by the by the people that I work with. Uh, my colleagues, I would say, are the biggest influences and mentors in my life. Um, wow. I mean, I don't have anybody in business that uh, I have a, a, a deep personal relationship that I would say has served as a mentor. I mean, I have a lot of influence. People have been incredibly kind and generous to me. And I mean, um, people that uh, uh, it, it, the generosity of, of, of acquaintances astounds me, but I would say the people that um, directly influence my behavior the most are people that I work with. And, and, you know, I'm really careful about who we let in and we have an incredibly high bar of how we hire. It's for that purpose that I, I want to be deeply influenced by those people. And I want them to speak truth into my life. Um, just like my, my family would, um, and I think that you get into dangerous spots if, if you, you know, isolate yourself with a group of people that tell you how great you are. You know, we don't need to be told how great we are. <laughs> All of us have a natural tendency um, uh, to want to believe uh, things that are that are nice that are said about us. Um, the important stuff is when people who love you, who are for you, um, tell you, hey, hey, you need to adjust your behavior. Um, that is the most valuable thing you can possibly have in your life. And to me, that's real mentorship. Yeah. Uh, is a loving, kind rebuke, and with them fully understanding who you are and doing it in a way that is not offensive, but that truly comes through and, and gets uh, gets through. And and I have that happen, um, you know, decently often. Um, and uh, you know, I can't say I, I always react well to it, but man, looking back on it, um, the biggest changes in my life that have happened is the result of somebody kind, um, who knows me well, who cares for me, who's for me, that sits down and says. Hey Brent, I want to bring something up with you, and it may be a little bit painful, but let's let's talk about it. And I'm here to help. Um, and, and it's just incredible. 
man, that is uh that's a great way to, to wrap this up. I think, I think, and I've talked about it with my company and it seems to get brought up the art of being able to have a difficult conversation with someone and leave the table both inspired, I think is, it's a talent in and of itself and it is, it's difficult and the people that can do it best, um, I think build the best relationships and are, are trusted the most. And, um, it's almost like a lifetime journey to get good at, at doing that. Yeah. yeah. Amen. I really appreciate you having me on the show, Chris. Thank you. Thank you very much. We'll be in touch with you. Sounds great. Hey, I really enjoyed this. I look forward, you know, when things get a little calmer on your end, on my end, um, really look forward to spending some time in person together. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review for us on iTunes. It will help more folks discover each episode. You can also reach me on Twitter at Fort Worth Chris or our email at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again.